0: This is Bang Goes the Universe, a walking, talking, four-dimensional tour of the history, the people, and the science behind one of the greatest discoveries of all time, the Big Bang. I'm your host, Ron Voller, writer, producer, astro-enthusiast, science communicator, and author of Hubble, Humason, and the Big Bang. This podcast is an attempt to demystify the science behind Big Bang cosmology by tracing the developments in modern Western thought that slowly led us to our current state of play. In this episode, I'll introduce you to a man whose life and work bridged the gap between the pre Socratics, the Pythagoreans, and the Platonists. An original polymath whose incredible insights would later influence not just Plato, but also Aristarchus, Ptolemy, and Copernicus. This is episode 7 Philolaus, Geocentrism Denier. everyone, and thank you for joining me. We are definitely starting to dig into the meat of the series with the subject of this episode. Philolaus is a most interesting character, and as I said in my opening, one whose influence would continue on for centuries after his death around 385 BCE. His book on nature was thought to be one of, if not the first book written by a Pythagorean, and its wholly natural subject matter makes it one of the first to contain deeper insights into the natural world here on Earth. Sadly, of the original text, only a scant few fragments are confirmed to be of Philolaus's work. He was, as Aristotle later put it, a physiologoi, a writer of nature. In the book, Philolaus sets forth his idea that the Earth is not the center of the universe, as many believe and he did so by blending the work of the Milesians and Pythagorans in equal measure. In order to break down and discuss the scope of his ideas, I'll walk you through the 11 fragments that remain from his original text. Philolaus was most likely born in the seaside town of Croton in what is today southern Italy in the year 470 BCE, a century after the birth of his hero Pythagoras whose system of ordering nature and the universe according to numbers he would adapt and modify. Later in life, after yet another attack on the Pythagorans and Croton, he would move across the Mar Grande to Taranto, where he lived out his remaining days in the heel of the boot of modern Italy. His birth year makes him a direct contemporary of Socrates, who lived a world away in Athens, and whose pupil Plato he would later influence. He was also a younger contemporary of both Anaxagoras and Empedocles, another Pythagorean adherent, and a slightly older contemporary of Democritus. Growing up as he did in the town where Pythagoras had started his ethical and philosophical cult many years before, no doubt influenced the young Philolaus. By this time, the teachings of the Milesian school were also prominent in the area. These two schools of thought became the centerpiece for a new universal and natural construction Philolaus would introduce to the region in the latter half of the 5th century BCE. As we go through this in detail, bear in mind that Philolaus and his contemporaries were introducing their new ideas on cosmic and natural constructs at a time when pagan traditions were just starting to give way to monotheism in this part of the world. Yet paganism would remain strong for many centuries as the Western world debated and often blended pagan, monotheistic, and philosophical ideas. We are witnessing a great historical philosophical migration, important context for the discussion of the development of modern science and philosophy. Here, then, are the insights Philolaus imparted in writing according to his surviving texts. In the opening of his book, Pfeilhaus writes, quote, Nature, physis, in the world order, or Cosmos, was fitted together out of the limitless and the limiting, both the world order and everything in it. This opening introduces the reader to the core of the Milesian school of thought. The limitless, referring to the four basic Milesian elements, air, water, fire, and earth, plus space and time. The limitless are undefined and indivisible, while the limiting provides the forms that make up the material world. Today we understand the most basic elements quite differently after 2,500 years of scientific development, experimentation, and discovery. But these elements are no more conspicuous to the naked eye today than they were to Philolaus in the 5th century. In fragment 2, Philolaus asserts that all elements must either be limiting or limitless, or both, This, he continues in Fragment 3, is because elements can't simply be limitless, as this would have only left a void. Since the universe is made up of each, both must be present. Without knowing it, Philolaus is hinting at the very real consequence of the one-in-a-billion material gain that emerged in the early universe that I introduced you to in the first episode of the series. We could take this statement and glean what we know to be true that the most basic elements, subatomic particles, were banded together by the forces of nature, forming eventually what we know as the known universe. And without both, the universe would simply be a vast void. But again, Philolaus is just walking around his village, looking at the sea, sitting around a fire with friends, philosophizing, and engaging in thought based on what he sees and hears. In Fragment 4, Philolaus brings Pythagoras into his discussion. All things that are known have number, he writes, for it is not possible that anything whatsoever be understood or known without this. As we discovered in Episode 5 of this season, this was a basic tenet of Pythagorean doctrine. He continues his thought in Fragment 5, quote, Number indeed has two proper kinds, odd and even, and a third from both mixed together, the even-odd. Of each of these two kinds, there are many forms, of which each thing itself gives signs. If Philos intended to utilize the so-called even-odd numbers, it isn't evident in the remaining fragments. What is evident is that what we now understand to be the irrational numbers which gave the Pythagoreans such anguish during the life of their founder and leader were by now an accepted part of the system of numbers. The fact that he immediately ignores the third and concentrates on the other, quote, two kinds in the second sentence is an indication that he doesn't have much use for irrational numbers. But now Philolaus unveils a marvelous and extraordinary melding of scientific philosophy with both pagan and monotheistic beliefs. Once again, he invokes the Milesian school while introducing his own new, highly imaginative, and to my musical ears, quite beautiful arcades. Harmony. In Fragment 6, he writes, This is how it is with nature and harmony. The being of things is eternal, and nature itself requires divine and not human intelligence. Moreover, it would be impossible for any existing thing to be even recognized by us if there did not exist the basic being of things from the which the universe was composed, namely, both the limiting and the non-limited. Remember our discussion in episode 2 of the season on ancient stories of creation? In that episode, I talked about the inextricable link between the development of prehistoric paganistic ritual and tradition, and the advent of both modern monotheism and scientific philosophy. I can think of no more perfect example of this early step in the evolution in human understanding than that which Philolaus discloses in this statement. Nature and Harmony divine intelligence, the universe composed of limiting and non-limited. Next, Filhaus underscores the importance of his arche, harmony, in the second part of this much longer fragment from his work. He writes, Since these beginnings, i.e. limiters and unlimited, pre-existed, and were neither alike nor even related, it would not have been possible for them to be ordered, if a harmony had not come upon them. Like things and related things did not in addition require any harmony, but things that are unlike and not even related, it is necessary that such things be bonded together by a harmony if they are going to be held in an order. The stuff of creation pre-existed? It was just lying around waiting to be wrought by some great unifying force into the universe as we know it? Were he alive today, I think Philolaus would have been pleased to know that the universe once Pre existed as a hypermassive, hyper energized, infinitely small ball of potential. He also likely would have thought of the universe as a whole as being quite harmonious. In fact, it is, although it frightens the hell out of many of us. The fact that modern astrophysics and quantum theory are still grappling with some highly unharmonious circumstances and outcomes is irrelevant in the face of the majesty and beauty of what lies between those outer poles. In the last part of this lengthy fragment, Philolaus waxes musical theory as he builds his case of the importance of the harmony in numbers. The content of the harmony, he writes, is the major fourth and the major fifth. The fifth is greater than the fourth by a whole tone. For from the highest string, the lowest note, to the middle is a fourth. And from the middle to the lowest string, the highest note, is a fifth. From the lowest to the third is a fourth. From the third to the highest is a fifth. Between the middle and third strings is a tone. The major fourth has the ratio 3 to 4, the fifth 2 to 3, and the octave 1 to 2. Thus, the harmony consists of five whole tones and two semitones, the fifth of three tones and a semitone, and the fourth consists of two tones and a semitone. This is Pythagorean doctrine reanimated in the form of the Milesian archae harmony. Quite literally, musical harmony, as the underlying force behind the creation and order of the cosmos. If I may be permitted a pun, This notion of universal harmony, plucked out on the strings of a lyre or lute, strikes a very personal chord with me. Many years ago, as I was first embarking on my writing career, I wrote and illustrated my first book, a children's book called The Adventures of Jude and the Guitar of Galore. I imagine you can still find it somewhere. Anyway, it's about a little boy in a faraway world whose nature is kept in harmony by the proper tuning, care, and playing of a unique and all-powerful guitar. I didn't know anything about Philos when I wrote it. Suffice to say that although I now understand the nature of the cosmos to be different, Phylos is still, for me, a kindred spirit. But now, Philos introduces us to his cosmogony, or cosmic beginnings, and his cosmology, or cosmic nature, bringing the preceding fragments to bear in his new and extraordinarily insightful construction of the solar system. In fragment 7, he writes... The first thing fitted together, the one in the center of the sphere, is called the hearth. This is his accounting of the birth of the cosmos. The hearth he named Hestia, after Hestia with an H, the Greek goddess of the hearth, daughter of Kronos and Rhea, and one of the twelve Olympian deities. The hearth is the center of Philolaus' universe, the house of Zeus and the mother of the gods. Here again we see the melding of the mythical doctrine of the age and a new, more scientific approach to philosophical thought. I want to stress also that we should interpret the word myth as spiritual teaching and not in the more negative sense, i.e. a falsehood, that it is used today. The unlimited fire, Philolaus continues, was placed in the center of the limited sphere, then united by the harmony to form the cosmos. The fire next drew in time, void, and breath. This idea might conjure in a modern audience the universe in the form of a tickle in the throat of a multiverse, perhaps, that is suddenly and with mighty force coughed out, creating the cosmos. It's not all that pleasant to think of myself as merely debris coughed out from a frog in the supercosmic throat, and we don't get the sense that Philolaus intends anything like a bang of sorts. His appears to be a calm and harmonious creation. But the truly remarkable insight in his construct of the cosmos is that this hearth is the center of the universe, and not the earth. This crucial step, while it wouldn't be confirmed for many centuries, nevertheless influenced the scientific debate, theory, and experimentation that would lead eventually to the unveiling of the broader cosmos. To illustrate his idea, Philolaus also included a diagram of his new cosmic order, consisting of ten concentric rings with a dot in the center. The rings are numbered 1 through 10, starting from the outer ring and ending near the center. The fixed stars, as he calls them, reside outside the sphere, with the hearth at its center. The sun is set in the ring numbered 7, the moon 8, the earth 9, and a new creation, the so-called Counter-Earth is 10, nearest the hearth of creation. Though they're not indicated in the diagram, the other four known planets are set on the rings in proper order between the Sun and the fixed stars, according to sources. Mercury 6, Venus 5, Mars 4, Jupiter 3, and Saturn 2. Arguments abound for Philoes' introduction of the so-called counter-Earth from Aristotle right through antiquity. Was it included to bring the number of rings to a perfect 10, as the Pythagoreans may have preferred? Was it introduced as counterweight to the Earth to keep it in its orbit around the central fire? There's no evidence whatsoever that Philolaus had any concept of gravity, making this a dubious notion at best. Or was it included to explain the occurrence of lunar eclipses, as Aristotle and others suggested? There's some merit in this idea. But I would like to suggest a simpler answer to this debate, and that is that Philolaus may have included the counter-Earth to account for day and night. If you look at his diagram, a copy of which you can find on the podcast page of my website at ronvaler.com, you see two versions of Philolaus' spherical cosmos, situated one above the other. The top diagram indicates the position of the Earth in counter-Earth at noon, while the bottom diagram indicates the same at midnight. The Sun and Moon and fixed stars remain in the same place in both, i.e. motionless. The Earth at noon appears directly between the Sun and Counter-Earth, accounting for the sunlight of day, while at midnight it sits in opposition to the Sun, with the Counter-Earth between the two, evidently blocking out the Sun's light. In this scheme, Philolaus appears to have placed the Earth in a polar-locked orbit, rotating once on its axis for every rotation around the central fire in the same way we now know that the Moon does in its orbit around the Earth. The counter-Earth moves in lockstep with the Earth, alternately blocking and unblocking the Sun's light. Other claims on the intent of Philos in this scheme notwithstanding, this seemingly disregarded idea seems plausible, if not highly likely to have been central to his approach. Keep in mind, there was plenty of argument over Philos's position on all this. He himself may have regarded the sun and moon as planets in their own right, as many did in that age. Remember Anaxagoras from episode 6, who was one of the first to regard the sun as a star, a highly controversial idea at the time. Falhaus also believed that a great fire existed beyond the fixed stars and set them alight, and that the sun was a transparent sphere that transmitted the faraway fire's light and heat to the earth an idea that was aligned with Empedocles. Furthermore, in the 2nd century of the Common Era, Ptolemy would produce what became the most highly regarded universal model, and it would put the Earth at its center. Furthermore, in the 2nd century of the Common Era, Ptolemy would produce what became the most highly regarded universal model, and it would put the Earth at its center. So what we're saying is, it wasn't as though everyone looked at Philolaus' assertions and collectively said... Yep, this guy's got it right. Everybody convert to this plan today. Nevertheless, his idea that the universe does not revolve around the Earth anticipated Copernicus by a thousand years. Having completed his treatise on the origin and complexion of the cosmos, Philolaus now turned his attention to Earth and the human animal. In retrospect, his opinions on human psychology and physiology distinguish him as a groundbreaking and insightful thinker. Although his adherence to Pythagorean numerological theory would be upended in time, his ideas on human thought and perception are worth a quick look as they pertain to the evolution of science and philosophy as a whole. For one thing, Philolaus was the first to make a distinction between sensory perception and knowledge. In Fragment 13 he writes, "...the head is the seed of intellect." the heart of soul or psyche and sensation, the navel of rooting and first growth, the genitals of the sowing of seed and generation. The brain contains the origin of man, the heart the origin of animals, the navel the origin of plants, the genitals the origin of all living things, for all things both flourish and grow from seed. To Philehouse's eyes... Animals could apprehend the world around them, but they didn't understand what they perceived because they couldn't understand the numbers that governed them. Of course, we know now that the world and its constituent parts are not governed by whole numbers. But Fialaos may have simply been trying to derive a cause for what seems at the surface to be a vast difference between human experience and that of the rest of the animal kingdom. What's more... He is thought to be the first of the Western philosophers to identify the brain with intellect and knowledge. His predecessors, and even contemporaries such as Empedocles, believed the heart was responsible for thought. Note that Philolaus called out four psychic faculties, the head, the heart, the navel, and the genitals, anticipating both Aristotle, who cited nutrition, appetite, sensation, movement, and thought, and Plato's assignment, of various faculties to areas of the body in the Timaeus. In the end, he returns to the true center of his universe, the harmony, to explain aspects of the human experience, even ranging back again into the pagan realm. In Fragment 22, he writes, The soul is joined to the body through number, and the immortal, and the likewise incorporeal or non-material harmony. The body is loved by the soul, because without it, it cannot use the senses. When the soul has been separated from the body by death, it lives an incorporeal existence in the world. Some philosophers argue that since the soul in Philolaus' physiological reckoning resided in the heart and controlled emotion and desire in humans and animals, that transmigration was thus possible for humans, but not in the form of plants. Plants being devoid of psyche, the Greek word for soul. In addition, they argue, since the soul doesn't include intellect, only human character could transmigrate, and not human intellect. These are all lovely ideas, and of course, none of us knows just exactly what happens to us when the body we reside in dies. The conservation of matter and relativity suggests that the material of a human being is left to the world at large. Much of it would appear to merely return to the earth and become the soil of regrowth. But the quantum world of which we are indelibly a part is a very strange place. This is why, perhaps, the notion of a hereafter is so persistent in our mortal and hopelessly self aware species. As Philolaus said, there are certain thoughts which are stronger than ourselves. Nevertheless, the ideas he put forth in Fragment 22 depart from his Pythagorean teaching, which placed reincarnation in human or animal form. For Philolaus, the ghosts of human beings were intangible and bodiless. Philolaus, the first to recognize Earth as not being the center of the universe, would influence the likes of Aristarchus of Samos, Ptolemy, and Copernicus, who called his ideas the first of a kind leading to the heliocentric model. He was seen by Aristotle who frequently cited Philolaus' system of limiteds and unlimiteds, along with the role of number in the central fire in cosmic creation, as the leading figure of the Pythagorean school. Although their system of numbers ordering his revolutionary cyclic orbit around a central fire produced by an animating harmony would prove incorrect, his work and that of Anaxagoras would be picked up by Aristarchus in his own prescient work on the universal system. A dyed-in-the-wool pre-Socratic, Philolaus saw nature as an orderly system and made it his business to define it. In doing so, he began what was a slow shift away from the long-held belief that the earth was the center of the universe, while adhering to the ideals and traditions of his day, which included the Greek notion of logos, or divine order. His contribution to science was, as so many contributions are, an incremental step in the long process of better understanding our world. And it must be said that his work was no less crucial than any other. So thought-provoking were his ideas that Plato mentioned him in the Phaedo, and discussed his metaphysics in the Philebus. Philolos of Croton was one of the true early heroes of modern science. In our next episode, we'll discuss the life and work of two men who were among the last of the pre-Socratics, and whose prescient insights about what Anaxagoras called the unseen world predicted one of the great fundamental characteristics in all of nature. That's coming up in Episode 8, Leucippus and Democritus Derive the Atom. Thanks for joining me. Likes and subscribers are most appreciated. So long for now. That concludes this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. Remember to like or subscribe to the show for updates on future episodes as they're published. We really appreciate the support. If you have questions or comments about or for current or future episodes, please leave them in the comments section or email them to me at contact at ronvoller.com. Bang Goes the Universe is written, produced, and hosted by me, Ron Voller. Thanks to Mark Baller for providing the theme music.